This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. This is a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the Wharton People Analytics Conference in Philadelphia, bringing together prominent data scientists, human resources managers, and members of academia to explore the use of data technology to enhance the work environment and create smarter managers and leaders. Here's your host, Professor Cade Massey. Welcome to the Wharton People Analytics Conference. It's the second year we're broadcasting here at the conference to bring you some of the top minds and ideas on how data can improve your organization and develop smarter leaders and better businesses. I'm Cade Massey, one of the hosts of Wharton Moneyball and Wharton Practice Professor of Operations, Informations, and Decisions. I'm excited to be here on the conference floor in Center City, Philadelphia, to bring you this exclusive look at the third annual People Analytics Conference. Kate Glazebrook is here, Principal Advisor, Head of Growth and Equality with the Behavioral Insights team. She's in from London. Before they changed their name, they were colloquially known, probably still are colloquially known, as the UK Nudge Unit. Correct. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kate. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for being here, and thank you for being at the conference. Tell us a little bit about your organization, what you guys are doing. Sure. Um, So the Behavioral Insights team was started in 2010 um, as a very small unit in Number 10, um, which is the Prime Minister's office. Yeah, Uh it has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Uh Um, A small unit in the Prime Minister's office in the UK. And the basic function was to bring the literature in in behavioural science to bear on public policy design and delivery. So we do two things. We we kind of try and drag out the great insights we, some of our colleagues, yourselves and and, and others, um, do good work in behavioural science, put it in public policy context and also rigorously evaluate. So do something that governments are not used to doing, which is truly testing whether or not their programs really work. So if I'm not mistaken, the UK might have had the first governmental nudge unit. Mm -hmm. And and it was always surprising to us. I mean, now lots of governments around the world have these things, maybe partly due to the example set by number 10. Why do you think the Prime Minister's office was especially open to this? What was what made this, this unusual step of bringing in the behavioral scientist to improve government in, in the UK? So the, the context is hugely important here. It was sort of 2010, new government came in, the nudge, the book, had just been released. And one of, actually, you know, it's one of those serendipitous moments. One of the PM's advisors had recently read Nudge and thought, hey, this might be a moment where we can think differently about how we design policy, particularly in a context of austerity, where we care much more about, you know, whether or not the, pro- the programs that we deliver actually kind of deliver the outcomes that we really care about. So yep. there was there was sort of, sort of an austerity side to that, but there was also a feeling that we want to we wanted to tackle problems slightly differently. So I think the, the kind of con- the political context had a role to play there. It was also about the people. So this this was a growing field, but it was one of those things that was just cracking into the parlance of, um, of policy design. And, and they saw that as an opportunity to take a bit of a risk, um, build a small team, and it's been a success since then. Mm-hmm. What were some of the early successes or the early success that got this going down the right path? I can imagine if you hadn't found success early on, it may not have gone anywhere. Absolutely. And it's crucial how we sequence these things. So one of the things we designed when we when we first started was we said, if in two years we haven't delivered a tenfold increase in the cost of the team, then you should get rid of us. And that was actually an explicit goal of the team to have a sunset clause on its on its creation. So tenfold in, earn, tenfold in earnings somewhere, the cost of the team. Yeah, or, so or tenfold in bringing in back. Savings. Yeah, in savings to yeah. government, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that put a deliberate pressure on the team to go out there and seek where could we really be making our greatest impact. And tenfold is a big number. It's a big 
big number. So, of course, unsurprisingly, we went we went and tackled some questions in tax. Um, and one of our one of our biggest early wins was just about looking at a group of people who hadn't paid their tax on time. So, our first sort of real test bed was people who hadn't paid their tax for sort of four or five years in the UK. Hmm. And we thought is there some way we could nudge them into paying their tax and kind of paying off what they owe back to government? And we tested a bunch of different types of interventions, largely just around how you talk to them in the letters that government was already sending to them. Mm -hmm. And we found that by telling people who haven't paid their tax on time that they're in a minority gets them to pay their tax on time. That was enough. That was enough, saying nine out of ten people pay their tax on time. And if you can even add to that, you know, that you're in a minority in your local area, that has an even even greater impact. So one of the nice things about working with governments is that you're probably dealing with large samples. Is Mm -hmm. that right? So when you ran this test... How yeah. many people are you talking about? Well, yeah, tens of thousands. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. It allows you yeah. to do these sub subgroups. Exactly, say. exactly. So a few years ago, you guys decided to move out of government and into at least partly for-profit work. Correct. So why, why make that transition, and what's been the difference for the organization now that you're outside of Number 10? Yeah, so we span out two years ago, um, and the impetus was really that the team had grown as big as it could grow within government um, at the time, and the, and the cabinet office, who's a co-owner of the team, thought, well, hey, there's a lot of demand out there for different government departments to get the expertise in. Why don't we ask them to pay for that expertise? And they have a mutuals program, so they okay. put out to tender, does anyone want to be a co-owner of this team that the government will continue to own part of? And the winning bid came from Nesta, which is the UK's leading innovation charity um, that kind of supports entrepreneurship in science, technology and the arts. And we're now structured quite interestingly. We have one third owned by the government, one third by the charity itself, and one third by the team. So we're oh, really? a social purpose mutual. Yeah. Very interesting structure. Mm. How big is the team these days? Worldwide, we're about 80 people now. So but most of us are based in the UK, but we've got a small team that's started just six months ago in New York. Uh, we've got a team in Australia, and we're about to open an office in Singapore. Okay. And I want to hear about this most recent project, but real quickly for context, how did you get started on this? I see that you have a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School, so you, you, you're clearly were raised in the UK, but you've done some education over here. How did you find your way back into that kind of work? So when I went to the Kennedy School, I just, I mean, I'd read, I'd read Nudge, I'd read um, How the Brain Changes Itself, I sort of thought, I'm, my background is in economics, and I just sort of thought there's got to be something more to this. And while I was there, I was fortunate enough to work with the likes of Bridget Madrian and Cass Sunstein, and, and did my... and I did my thesis for the Behavioural Insights team, it was sort of an applied project. So I had the opportunity to kind of get a feel for them and they got a feel for me while I was studying. You'll be happy to know that I did actually have to go through a pretty rigorous recruitment process. Is that right? Um, And and then, yeah, it was... for this kind of work, that was the place I wanted to be. And were you there from the beginning, or did you join them after they started? I joined after they started, yeah. Okay. So Cass, of course, is one of the co-authors of Nudge, mm-hmm. and Bridget has is, is done lots of great research, but she gets probably most cited for that seminal work on 401ks Correct. and the, the power of defaults there. Both of them former University of Chicago, if I can just brag for a moment. Mm-hmm. About so you spoke this morning about a cool new project you guys are doing, and you're kind of um, you're testing on yourselves first. So can you describe for us what, what, what that is all about? Sure. So um, the problem we're really looking to solve here is is one of recruitment decision making. It's rife. Most of us know that recruitment decision making is rife with behavioural biases. But actually, as it turns out, most organisations haven't embedded any of that knowledge of best practice into what they actually do. Um, And we kind of came at it a couple of ways. One way was that we spent some time in the literature and just sort of pulled out what we thought worked um, so we could make clearer to people what some of the pitfalls were. Mm -hmm. 
we were also simultaneously doing some work with different public sector organisations in the UK, including the police and Teach First, on small nudges, some small different things that you can do in a recruitment process that have sort of disproportionate impact. So if I can, if I can give you an example, in the police context, they were really worried about having low levels of racial diversity in their mm -hmm. offices. Mm -hmm. And that was a problem for two reasons. One is the obvious sort of we care about diversity. It's, there's a moral and ethical imperative there. But there was also an operational imperative for them. Totally. You know, serving a, um, their population requires looking and feeling like the population that they're serving. Right. Um, so we went in there and we did a pretty forensic evaluation of where in their recruitment process did there appear to be disproportionate drop-off by these um, you know, non-white backgrounded yep. um, candidates. And we found it was around a situational judgment test, an online test that they were asked to do. Hmm. Um, and we didn't actually change the test, but what we did do is using some of the stereotype threat literature. Really? Okay. Uh, we changed the environment in which people went into that test. Oh, that's interesting. So what we looked at was, how about we change the email that people get when they click on the link to do the test? And mm -hmm. is there something we could do about the mindset that people go into that mm -hmm. test with? Could you give our listeners just a quick synopsis of the stereotype threat literature that informed that nudge? Absolutely. So the stereotype threat literature basically says that if you belong to a certain group and there is a perception that that group is likely to underperform in a particular task, that reminding them of their group association before they do that task will impact their performance. Right. Adversely. Adversely. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the classic example is asking people whether or not they're female before they do a maths test. Sometimes that can have an effect on, the, on a female's performance in a maths test as opposed to just asking that same question at the end of the maths test. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. small contextual factors can have impacts on, on people's performance. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, there's you know, literature to, to, to suggest that doing exams and online exams for particular groups might be seen as a situation where they're less likely to perform at their best. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we ran a randomised control trial where there was a control group that got the usual email, which was sort of, Dear Cade, here you've passed through to the next stage of the recruitment process. We'd like you to take this test. Please click here. And then for another randomly selected group of people, we sent them the same email, but we changed two things. One thing is we made the email slightly friendlier in its tone. Mm -hmm. And we added a line where we said, take two minutes before you do the test to have a think about what becoming a police officer might mean to you and your community. Mm -hmm. And this was about bringing in this concept of you are part of this process, you are part of the community, and becoming a police officer is part of that. So sort of trying to break down the barrier that they are not... Mm -hmm of the police force and because it doesn't look like them. So this is, before you give the result, because there's some drama here, this is exactly what people talk about when they talk about nudges. Exactly. I mean, this is bringing social science to bear in a very subtle way that doesn't restrict anybody's freedom, Correct. but might, might impact their performance on the other side of the nudge. So what did you find? So what we found was, interestingly, if you were a white candidate, the email had no impact on your pass rate, none whatsoever. 60% of white candidates were likely to pass in, in either condition. But interestingly, non-white candidates, it basically closed the, the attainment gap between okay. white and non-white candidates. Okay. So basically increased by 50% the chance of passing that test just by adding that line and making the changing the email format. Okay. So that, that was a sort of an early piece of work that m reminded us of just the thousands of ways that we could be rethinking recruitment practices mm -hmm. to in influence the kind of social mm -hmm. outcomes we care about, but as you say, not restricting choice. Mm -hmm. So we're talking to Kate Glazebrook. She is principal advisor and head of growth and equality with the Behavioral Insights team, formerly the UK Nudge Unit. You talked to project, about your project this morning where you're trying to uh, operationalize all that we know about the mistakes people make when they read people's CVs, essentially. So you're trying to come up with a better, an alternative to the traditional read the CV and make hiring decisions that way. What alternative are you creating? 
So we spent about a year burying ourselves in the behavioural literature and we wanted to come up with, if we were to do just a few things, what would be the things that would really affect um, a, a recruitment decision? Mm -hmm. So we settled on four different features. Three of them are about changing the choice architecture, for want of a better word, or the, or the environment in which people make assessments. And the fourth one is about what are you actually assessing in a recruitment practice. So if I go through them very quickly. Yep. The, the first is anonymization. Low-hanging fruit, but hugely important. Right. There's no need that I know that you arcade when I'm reading aspects of your application. It's really nice that you arcade, right. but I'm just wanting to attend to the details that matter. So removing yep. distractions of name, background, university attended, so forth. Right. Easy. Second one was around how are we actually assessing? So rather than thinking about recruitment the way we usually do, which is I start with your CV and I read top to bottom, as Danny Kahneman talked about in his, in his speech, there's a real risk that if I really like what you said on page one, it's very hard for me to objectively assess your page two or three. Alternatively, if you've got a spelling error on your page one, it's very hard for me to, again, not feel sort of subconsciously like maybe you're not the kind of candidate I'm looking for. Now, a spelling error in certain jobs might be a huge indicator of whether or not you're a good person. Attention to detail can matter. But what we don't want it to do is we don't want it to disproportionately matter. So one, one thing we've done there is we've built in a bunch of different aspects to horizontal comparison, which, does, which not only accounts for reducing the risk of halo effects, so I'm comparing answers to question one across, across one another, but I'm also reducing the cognitive load. So I'm getting you to say, who's, who's got the best answer to question one, irrespective right. of any other thing, and then who's got the best answer so to question every, two. everybody's question one, exactly. all the way through the ones, and then question two, everybody's question two. Exactly, exactly. A much better way to evaluate. Exactly, so okay. that's the second feature. The third feature is really about how do you harness the wisdom of the crowd? So we hear a lot mm -hmm. um, about wisdom, wise crowds, and, and there's a lot of science to support that. A lot of recruitment decisions can be time costly. So what we wanted to do was, what is the optimal crowd to mitigate the risk against getting rid of your best candidate? And we ran some interesting experiments on this, and we basically settled on three. Three is so your a small optimal crowd. crowd. The a power crowd. of a small crowd. Exactly, Absolutely. which most, most organisations can afford to have three people help them hire their best people. Right? Mm -hmm. If we live in a knowledge economy, it's crucially important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fourth one is really about testing what works. So what is predictive on the yep. job is why don't I test you on the things you're actually going to do on the job mm -hmm. rather than things you've done in the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need to wrap up, Kate, but to, to, get, to get to the results on that, you just have some data from your initial studies yep. and you're happy with the way these things are looking, right? Yeah, we're really excited. We, we basically tested this process against a standard CV process and we found that we would have hired... Um, we wouldn't have hired 60% of our ultimate hires had we used CVs, which is to say that we chucked out their CV in the first round and it turned out they were our best candidates. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Great example of the social scientific approach, the experimental approach, and uh, some of the work that you guys have been doing. Thank you, Kate, for joining us. Thanks for stepping away from the conference and being with us here. Thanks, Kate. Kate Glazebrook, Principal Advisor, Head of Growth and Equality at the Behavioral Insights Team and a speaker here this year at the People Analytics Conference. So Kate was our fourth and final guest on this special show. This has been uh, the third annual People Analytics Conference coming to you from Center City, Philadelphia on SiriusXM Business Radio. Thank you and join us again down the road. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.